Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, we are talking with one of the most successful Wall Street investors of the past three or four decades. If too many people have too much money and too much eagerness to invest, what happens? The price goes too high, which means the prospective return goes too low and the risk goes too high. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. You know, every so often we get a real treat, a a market maven, someone who is an influential big time investor who can provide insight for the rest of us, the, the people who can use this information and actually help achieve our own goals. Today, Howard Marks, the author of Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side, is our guest. Now, he is a big-time investor, uh, one of the founders of Oak Tree Capital. He is essentially someone who's been around to tell you what you need to know. And I know that the title sounds almost like he's advocating market timing. That's not what it's about. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. Here's our interview. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Howard Marks, welcome to the program. We start every show with a very important financial question. You ready? Yes, I am. Best financial decision or career decision you ever made? Well, it was to start Oak Tree. And tell us a little bit about that. I had had uh, two jobs. I worked at Citibank for 17 years and then Trust Company of the West for 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, at, the, at the end of uh, 94, my uh colleagues and I decided to leave to start Oak Tree. Why did you do that? I mean, you had a great career. What what did you see that was going on in the 90s that made you want to do that? Well, first of all, uh, it, it, the funny thing about our business is if you reach a certain stature, uh, you can go out on your own and the house doesn't get their share. You know, So we were working for the minority of the fees. Mm-hmm. That was number one. Number two, we wanted to have a firm that ran our way. We have very definite ideas about how to run money and over there, they ran money every which way, depending on the strategy. And uh, as when I became president over there, I, I was uncomfortable fronting for uh, approaches I didn't uh, agree with. So what are those approaches that you founded this company with? Tell us a little bit, because this has to do with your book as well. So sure. what is the approach that Oak Tree took that was uh, maybe different than where you were? Well, all we did is we, ke- we continued to run money as we had. You know I write. So we sat down and wrote out how we had been running it, and that became Oak Tree's investment philosophy, which we still follow today. And and the key thing about Oak Tree is that all of the strategies follow the same philosophy. And which is? Six tenets. Okay. The first one says that the most important thing for the money manager is not making a lot of money. It's not beating the market. It's not being in the top quartile. The most important thing is controlling risk. And, uh, you know, we are in risk-prone sectors of the market. We don't do high-grade stocks, high-grade bonds. We do alternatives. Right. And and I always thought that, that the best formula was to be the low-risk manager in high-risk asset classes. How do you do that in if you're, when you're in those high-risk areas? Well, the, you know, in each one, there's a, there are different ways to do it. But for example, in high-yield bonds, which is where I started at Citibank 40 years ago, we buy single Bs. Now, in the last 10 years, the people who bought triple C's and on down made more money. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more uncertain. And the clients who come to us want a high degree of reliability. So you think that controlling risk is, or that is your main, your first tenant. Yes. Can you compare that with the way that 
many managed funds do look at their, like whatever, maybe they don't even have articulated tenants, but it seems to me that everybody's like, well, I just want to beat the market. Right. Well, I think that's right. I think that uh, for most people, uh, beating the market is the most important thing and maximizing return. I believe that it's not important to beat the market when the market does well, which is most of the time. Our clients want to beat the market when it does poorly. Right. And if we can deliver, let's say, average return in the good years and above average returns in the bad years, we will have above average returns overall, below average volatility, especially good performance in the bad times, which is when I think you need it, and happy clients. In addition to managing risk, okay. what's, what's the second Number two is consistency. Okay. You know, our, uh, we and our clients don't have the objective of being in the top 5% of money managers in a given year, and we're unwilling to be in the bottom five. They want consistency. Number three is we are only active in the less efficient markets where we think hard work and skill can pay off. So that's really interesting. I just want to interrupt you for a second because I think a lot of people who listen to this show, they hear me talk about like, why are you buying a, you know, a U.S. growth fund when you can buy the index? Yes. Explain what your decision and why that decision is different and what those markets present to you. My first 10 years at Citibank were spent in the equity research department from 68 to 78. I ended up as director of research for the last few years. And then I was moving over to money management and the boss said, what do you want to do? I said, I'll, I'll do anything except spend the rest of my life choosing between Merck and Lilly. <laughs> I mean, there, there are such a thing, you know, I went to the University of Chicago in the mid sixties when they were just starting to talk about market efficiency. It's a concept that was developed there and taught there. And Market efficiency basically says that if everybody understands a market, knows about it, has the data, is highly uh, motivated to participate, and so forth, that their efforts will drive out of existence all the bargains, and everything will come end up being priced fairly for the risk. Right. I believe in the concept of market efficiency. I don't believe that any markets are fully efficient. But as I say, I don't think you can, if you said to me, you know, uh, you can work here for the next 50 years, and if by the end of it, you you have chosen successfully between Merck and Lilly each year, and you get a $10 million bonus, or otherwise you get nothing. I don't think you could do that. Right. It's like it's like being a professional coin tosser. So where do you think that there is market inefficiency? If the U.S. large cap market has some semblance of efficiency, yeah. and you're probably better off buying an index fund. Right, right. Where are the places and what parts of the market do you think that there is still inefficiency? Well, we're active in uh, non-investment grade credit, which means high yield bonds, leveraged loans, uh, direct lending, non you know private lending, mezzanine finance, uh, and things like that. We're active in real estate and real estate debt, infrastructure, emerging markets, Japan, you know, anything off the beaten path. Now, some of these have gotten more efficient than they used to be. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, knowledge is cumulative. People learn things. They Once they learn them, they basically don't forget them. So there's a kind of an upward ratchet. And, you know, now, especially with uh, all the computer power, the Internet and all that kind of thing, there's kind of uh, no such thing as not knowing something anymore. Mm. You know, you're sitting at dinner. You say, I love that movie. What, what year was that? And you know within two seconds. I know. We used to scratch our heads right. saying, yeah, and we spend the right. entire meal, That's and then right. you drink a little more, right. and you really have no yes. idea what the question was to begin with. Exactly. But <laughs> but so it, it's tougher. Uh, everybody knows more today than they used to know. In in a place like in Europe, or uh, do you feel like those are efficient markets? Are people going to be okay buying a European stock index, generally speaking, do you think? I think the further you get from the U.S., 
presumptively, the less efficient the markets are. Mm. So Europe may be a little less than here, but not too much. Mm -hmm. uh, but then if you get to uh, Asia and Japan and and uh, emerging markets, I think you can find, and then uh, ultimately the frontier markets, you can probably uh, find uh, assets that are mispriced. By the way, mispriced is not the same as cheap. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Okay. You want to just find a distortion yes. and take advantage of yes. it one right. way or the other. Yes. Are you guys willing to be short sellers when you see a distortion that way? We're not that big on short selling. Uh, short selling is very tough. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, name the famous successful short sellers. Jim Chanos. Okay. Uh, uh, Maybe. And the, and the others? I'm thinking. And, yeah. <laughs> All right. You, get back to me. <laughs> when I was on the floor, I felt like... Short sellers did incredibly well because it was like an hour to hour yes, short, right? right? Like I, I went short until 2.30 right, and right. then I covered and I went home and I made a few bucks. But that's what I call trading. Right. That's not investing. No. And I don't know anything about trading. You know, in my world, in my experience, trading is what you do to implement an investment idea. You you want to buy a certain bond, you call the traders, you say, see if you can get me 10 million. Right. But you're not doing moment to moment or day to day. And I think that the practice of trading is probably going to reach its sort of final conclusion because it would seem to me what I used to do standing on the floor of a commodities ring that is essentially going to go away or has been going away because of algorithms and trading that technology has really improved. And Same answer. Right? You know, people get smarter. Yeah. Processes get smarter. The inefficient markets, I just want to ask you a quick question yes. about before we go to four, five, six. You hear a lot about these debt markets as being, I've interviewed a couple of economists recently, and they continually point to some of the dangers in the debt markets right this minute. Mm -hmm. And um, whether it is the actual junk bond market, whether that means the um, the leverage loan market, which is not exactly a bond, but it's sort of smells like one. And Janet Yellen was recently quoted in the Financial Times saying that this is a huge risk. Mm -hmm. What is your view on that side of the marketplace and what risk is prevailing now? Seven worst words in the world, too much money chasing few deals. Yeah. And I believe that it, that is definitely true of parts of the debt markets. Mm. There is pro-risk behavior going on. And I, to me, the, the word pro-risk is a very negative word. Right. Because Buffett says, the less prudence with which others conduct their affairs, the greater the prudence with which we must conduct our own affairs. Mm. And when others are behaving in a pro-risk fashion, it makes the market risky for everybody. In the debt world, if there is too much money chasing too few deals, then the auction, everything in every, every market is an auction place and the auction gets too heated. Mm -hmm. And if too many people have too much money and too much eagerness to invest, what happens? The price goes too high, which means the prospective return goes too low and the risk goes too high. I would be surprised, Jill, to see this market go the way of the global financial crisis with the subprime mortgages. I don't think that the organizations doing the investing I'm talking about are systemically important. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're doing it on the same kind of leverage. What's the problem? The problem then is that when the auction is too hot, people get money they shouldn't get on terms they shouldn't get. And that means that in the end, some investors will end up having taken more risk than they should have, perhaps, and received 
inadequate return to do so. So would you pin that on the Fed for keeping rates too low for too long? Or is that would you say that that is just a market condition of bull market in general and easy money going for far too long? A little bit of each. Um, I don't think that the Fed kept rates too low for too long. I think they kept them low. Mm -hmm. But they had to, to ensure that our uh, economy uh, made a comeback. You know, in my new book, I talk about the global financial crisis at length. And I say that we've made a nice comeback from the global financial crisis. But I hope that investors won't take away the wrong lesson because they could conclude, well, obviously what history has showed recently is that we, we can fix crises, that the Fed and the Treasury know how to pull us out. Right. And that's the wrong lesson. What's Be- the lesson? Well, the lesson is that these things are dangerous. And in this case, if they hadn't done the right thing promptly in huge scale, and if it hadn't worked, we would now be in a depression, in my opinion. Hmm. Uh, you know, because the serial meltdowns of financial institutions would not have stopped with Lehman. Uh, they would have gone on, and who knows where. Right. But I think we were in a very, very serious position, and we're very fortunate that we had leaders like Paulson and, and Bernanke and Geithner, and that they did the right things and that they worked, which is not always the same thing. You know, right. Sometimes you do the right thing and it doesn't work. Absolutely. Uh, but it, it, it worked, and so we didn't have a depression. So that's a long answer to your statement, did they keep rates too low? I don't think they kept them too low, but in order to solve the problem, they kept them low, and the result of keeping them low was that people who used to invest in the money market and treasuries and maybe high-grade bonds couldn't do so because, you know, the yields were zero, one, and three. Right. And pension funds and endowments, for example, in this country need seven and a half or eight. So they couldn't do that stuff. So the money had to migrate up the risk curve to risk assets, stock market, high-yield bonds, leveraged loans, private lending, real estate private equity, venture capital. Okay. So does that mean that in whatever, when the next downturn comes, because there there is a next downturn, we have not repealed the economic cycle, uh, that there are going to be a lot of unhappy individual investors who went out on that risk scale who maybe don't realize what they've done? That's that's my general position. Uh, You know, I used to tell the story, not quite so relevant anymore, about the guy who's sitting in his undershirt watching the Super Bowl, and he gets a statement from Fidelity, and it says, you know, the yield on your money market fund is now zero. The yield on your uh, intermediate treasury fund is now zero. And so he picks up the phone. He calls the 800 number. He says, get me out of those funds that yield zero. Right. Put me on, in the one that yields six. Right. And he becomes a high-yield bond investor. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what that means. He doesn't know what risk it entails, uh, but he knows that, he want, that six is better than zero. And I think that that's an extreme description of pro-risk behavior. Mm. And one of my beliefs is that there's nothing wrong with taking risk as long as you do it intelligently, as long as you understand the risk and understand the importance of mitigating it and how to do so. Right. Uh, the, 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 what I just described is not the intelligent bearing of risk. So uh, I do think that money was forced out of the safe asset classes into the risky asset classes where maybe there was too much money chasing too few deals. And the result, as I say, is bad decisions. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Howard Marks in just a second. Boy, Howard Marks, isn't he just quintessentially not the average investor? He's not even the average investment manager. 
you can hear how his philosophy is a little bit different. He really is looking at minimizing risk. And frankly, we don't do enough of that. We, don't, we talk a lot about return. We need to be focusing on risk. I think the sort of the average Joe investor out there always looks like, what's my upside? But you're not the average Joe and you're not the average investor. So why settle for the same old average investing? Now there's a smarter way to manage your money, Betterment, an online financial advisor for people who refuse to settle for average. Plan for retirement, reach your financial goals, make the most of your money. Don't settle for average investing, demand better. Of course, all investing involves risk. Better Off listeners can get up to one year managed free by visiting Betterment.com slash betteroff. That's Betterment.com slash betteroff. And now back to our interview with Howard Marks. We covered your, your top three. Let's go to your four, five, six tenets. Okay, number four is a high degree of specialization. So we don't have a central research department. Each strategy has its own research department. Each person is dedicated to one strategy. We don't have jacks of all trades. And uh, and each fund does one thing. So if somebody comes to Oak Tree and they want an XYZ fund, high-yield bond fund, I mean, I, as I say, I started at Citibank 40 years ago, and our high-yield bond portfolios in 40 years have never owned anything but a high-yield bond. That's not true of many funds. Many funds have some commons, some preferreds, some distressed debt, some munis, some some sovereigns you know, other things to goose the return. Is that because they got too big or is it simply to goose the return? Well, I think it's to goose the return. You know, back when I was at Citibank, my boss said to me, why don't you, I was running convertibles and high yield bonds. He says to me, why don't you put some converts in the high yield portfolios? Because the stock market strength could add to the return. I said, well, I think that's a great idea. And I'll also put in some some gold and some old master paintings. (laughs) You know, Uh, I mean, we believe in giving the client what they asked for. And if they want something else, we'll give them that too. But it should, again, be a knowing, conscious decision. Interesting. Okay. Specialization. What's number five? Five, to me, is one of the more interesting ones. Our investment actions are not governed by macro forecasts. Okay. That's really interesting because so many firms have that super duper economist who speaks to all the clients and says, Mm -hmm. let me explain this to you, Mr. Klein, Ms. Klein, Ms. CFO. Let me tell you what's going to happen next year. Right. And why do you not do that? The macro outlook is very important. Macro drives the markets these days and has for the last... I don't know, 15 years, I think. Macro took over from micro uh, some time ago. But I don't think it's knowable. You know, we don't have an economist at Oak Tree. We don't have economists in. One of my good friends who who is uh, an economist who I started working with early in my career, which probably means the late 60s, called me a couple of years ago and he said, you know what, you've changed my life. I said, how is that? He says, because I, I've stopped making forecasts. I tell people what I see going on. I tell them what I think it means. And that's it. The point is, most forecasts are extrapolations. Everybody agrees with them. If they come true, it doesn't make anybody any money. Right. The forecasts that would make people money are idiosyncratic forecasts of deviation from trend. And and they would be highly profitable, but they're rarely right. So what that says is that, to me that you have you have uh, consensus forecasts which are usually right but not profitable mm-hmm. and idiosyncratic forecasts which are potentially profitable but rarely right. Why do it? Why I, go to the trouble? That's so interesting. And, and, the, and, and to put it in slightly different terms but really saying the same things, the goal, as you know, is to be a superior investor. If we are not superior, we, we have no edge. We have no reason for, for being. It has to come from seeing things differently and doing things differently and, and having a superior insight. 
And I just don't believe that it's possible to have a superior insight in the macro, which is economies, markets, currencies, and rates. Mm -hmm. uh, we spend all our time trying to know the micro, companies, industries, and securities, and doing so better than others. And all with a really close eye towards risk mitigation, right? Right, right. yes. Okay, so we do micro, not macro. Was that four or five? That's that five. That was five. What's a six? We're not the kind of people who go in and out of the market, cash, no cash. Long term. Yes, very very hard to do that right. You know, uh, if you go from an asset, let's say high yield, you sell a high yield bond that yields six, you put it into cash, it yields one, you better be right right away. And it's very hard to do that right away. And then, by the way, you have to get back in at the right time. It's very, very hard to do that. So in your new book, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side, you are not advocating market timing. This is semantic. Okay. Uh, I think some, I think market timing is what I just described. Right. Getting in, out yeah. for the short term based on predictions of what the market's going to do. Right. And I, I think that's very hard to do. I don't advocate that. What I think is very important and what we do and have done with good success is that we alter our offense versus defense. Again, not based on forecasts, but based on observations with regarding the here and now. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if I see that the market has been strong, that valuations are high on the back of pro-risk behavior, that tells me, I call this a process called uh, taking the temperature of the market, and that tells me that we should be cautious, more cautious than usual. And that's what we have been for the last few years. If, uh, if the market goes down and stocks are, are statistically cheap and everybody's suicidal and everybody's saying, that's it, I'll never take risk again, I say, okay, that's the time that we should get in because probably there's no optimism cooked into the prices of stocks. That's probably a time we should move forward. And I think that that's really important because, you know, when we hear from individual investors who call, call into the program, they'll often say things like, well, I, I'm just so nervous about stocks, I'm going to like get out of every stock. And I say the same thing, like you're going to have to get two brilliant decisions, right? right? Sure. And now it's different than, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm playing defense. I made a ton of money in the stock market over the last nine years. My position is swollen. Right. I sure. used to be a 70-30 sure. kind of investor yeah. and now I'm 90-10. Yes. What is the advice that you would give to the, like sort of the, the journeyman investor who's yeah. got a half a million dollars in non-retirement assets and a million dollars in retirement funds managing his or her own money. What is the advice that you think that that person is not receiving or even, or what is the strategy that person's not executing? Well, it's multi-layered, but let's take the person you're talking about. I'm nervous. I want to get out of the market. Right. Why are you nervous? I'm nervous because everything I read is negative. Everybody else reads the same negative stories. They're nervous, too. The price of the stocks reflects their nervousness. That means it's probably not a time to get out. Maybe it's a time to get in. Most people sell when they're nervous and prices are low and buy when they're confident and prices are high. Now, I was taught, uh, I always say my mother said, Howie, buy low, sell high. But most people buy high, sell low. So the first thing to notice is the importance of not doing so, the importance of not succumbing to crowd psychology, the importance of controlling your emotions. Doing what most people do, which is buy high, sell low, is the worst thing you could do. It's much better to just buy and hold. Uh, for, for people who can't make a superior uh, decision on what I'm 
talking about, which I call cycle positioning, then I think that that buy and hold is better than the default psychology of following the herd. Still better if you can do it, if you can devote the time and effort, if you have the experience level or have read enough, and if you can get your emotions under control, still better is to buy when everybody else is nervous and sell when everybody else is euphoric. Um, and that's really what the book's about. So that would be cycle positioning. Now, the, the other thing I want to mention based on what you just said, you know, I've had a great ride. I've, I've made a lot of money. My portfolio has gone from 70-30 to 90-10. Okay, so here's my question to you. Based on where we are, not making a guess about where we're going, are things as attractive today as they were at the start of that nine-year period? And no. the answer is the S&P has quadrupled. The easy money's been made. There may, the market may go up for the next two years. I'm not saying it's not. Right. But certainly it's not going to quadruple again in the next nine years. Right. So that tells me that you shouldn't have as much risk today as you had nine years ago. So essentially, even if I were to say, okay, I have to rebalance. Yes. I'm going to be back to 70-30. Yes. You might even argue, given what has just happened, that it shouldn't be 70-30. Right. It should be 60-40. Exactly. Exactly. Now, let me let me put it in my words for your listeners. Okay. Think of this as a speedometer on your dashboard. Goes from zero to 100. Zero is all cash. You're terrified. You think the market's falling apart. You think that nobody else has figured it out yet, so prices are high, so you get out. You go to all the cash. Can't lose money, can't make money. 100 is fully invested in aggressive assets and maybe using some leverage. To do that, you would have to say everybody else is, is suicidal and the prices are on the floor, so it's, it's worth taking max risk. I can't imagine ever being at zero or 100. Right. But the first thing that every person should do, and I doubt many people do this, or even perhaps organizations, is you should say, where should my normal risk position be? It depends on who you are, your age, your financial condition, your earnings, how your earnings relate to your spending. Are you making more than you need or less? How many dependents do you have? How old are they? What are their needs going to be? What is your emotional makeup? What is your ability to bear risk and hold on through tough times, which is the most important single thing in investing? You think about all that and you say, okay, I'm, uh, I'm uh, 30 years old. I've got a good career. Uh, I'm married. I don't have any children yet. Uh, I can take risk. And, and by the way, I make more than I need. I put some money aside every month. So I would say, okay, you're an 85. And by the way, and I'm, I'm, and I'm tough. Uh, you right. know, I've been through this before. It's, right. it's not my first rodeo. Uh, I, I, can, I can live through a dip. Right. So I say, you're, you sound like an 85 to me. Right. And you agree. Okay. Right. And, and it's different for everybody. You know, age is very important, retirement status, et cetera. So the second question is, what about today? Should you actively manage your risk position relative to the normal position? That's, so that's question 2A. And 2B is, if yes... What should you do today? So you're right. You were in the 10th year of an economic recovery. We've never had a, an economic recovery that went more than 10 years. We're in the 10th year of a bull market, by many measures, the longest in history. Stocks have quadrupled. We know that we're in a rising rate environment. We know that the central banks are going to be pulling in the stimulus, which, uh, you know, everything else being equal, should have a restrictive influence on the economy. Mm -hmm. I would argue that you should have less risk in your portfolio than normal. So if you're an 85, maybe you should be a 65 today or 70. Mm. And if, if you, Jill, are a 70, uh, then maybe you should be a 50 or 60. 
But how many people do this out of 100? How many very, I think very few. Yes, very few. But, I, think, I think even fewer. I think that professionals yes, don't right. advocate for it because they don't want to be on the hook to have the disappointment. I think that right. they are all a bunch of wimps because mm-hmm. if I don't yeah. hit the mark on the index, then I'm going to lose money right. and then my business goes kaput and right. what, where, who, who am I helping then? You're right. Uh, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out, is a dominating emotion. And as you say, uh, not being in the market represents career risk for the investment professional. As we started off the interview by saying, failing to keep up with the market is not the worst thing in the world. You know, look, I believe that when the market is risky, you should cut your risk. The first of the great adages that I ever learned was that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. Mm-hmm. Where if we do these things, even if you do the right thing in the investment business, you, you rarely do it at the right time, which means you're going to reduce your risk. The market's going to keep going up. You'll feel stupid. You may lose some clients if you're a professional. But what about doing the right thing? One thing you have to accept to be an investor is there is nothing you can do that will always work. So, Howard, we started the interview and I asked you your best decision, which was to create this behemoth fund that you have. What was the worst? Right now, the worst is that we've been conservative for the last 10 years or for the last five years. This has been a market that's gone on longer than most expected. Uh, It has rewarded most highly the people who took the most risk, and that wasn't us. I don't think it's the end of the world. We've said a few times, underperforming a hot market is not the end of the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Jill. Thank you so much to our guest, Howard Marks. And remember, we drop new episodes of this show every Tuesday and Thursday. If you'd like to get on the air with us, all you have to do is go to the website. Go to JillOnMoney.com, click Contact Us, and you will be able to get on the air live. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13, and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.